On this episode of the Creativity in Motion podcast, Grendel Opry member Mark Wills. But we've all done it. We've all passed on songs. We've all had those, you know, those things that just landed in our lap and we go, nah, that's not me. You know, and you look back on it and you go, well, mess that one up. I'm ready if you are. Hi, my name is Chris Hollow. And I'm Mark Mosry, and this is episode number 19 of Creativity in Motion, a podcast about creativity where we talk with creatives of all kinds to find out why they create and especially how they overcome creative obstacles. In this episode, we're talking with Grand Ole Opry member Mark Wells. Hey, before we start talking with Mark, I want to tell you about our sponsor, NOSI College of Art. NOSI College opened in 1973 as a fine art school and has transformed into Tennessee's only private art college. They offer bachelor's degree programs in commercial illustration, graphic design, video and film, photography, and they also offer an associate's degree in culinary arts. NOSI has a beautiful 55,000-square-foot facility that was built with the artistic student in mind that includes computer labs, production suites, photography and video studios, and a fully stocked equipment cage. Everything students need to get creative. To learn more about NOSI College of Art, you can visit nosi.edu, that's N-O-S-S-I dot E-D-U for degree program details, faculty information, and student work. And bonus, we just learned that Mark Willis has had his picture made up there in the studios at NOSI College of Art. How that's right. That? That's yeah. super cool. Uh, today we're talking with singer, songwriter, and Grand Ole Opry member Mark Wills. He's an ACM award winner. He's got platinum albums, gold albums, several number ones, and has released seven albums over his 20-plus year career. Welcome to the show. Mark. Thank you, man. How you guys doing? Excellent. Good. Excellent. Well, so we today, we are usually we're in my studio we're doing this. And <laughs> well, today you're in my studio. Today we are in a <laughs> swanky hotel at an undisclosed location. Can't can't tell you where the stars celebrities stay. It's not the Drake Motel on Murfreesboro Road. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa! It is not the Drake Motel. Well, they threw a hood over my head and brought me to this thing. So this is not it, the Drake. It might be. Here's the, Drake. the deal. Here's the deal. You're you're much closer to the Grand Ole Opry oh. here than the, you would the, be at the Drake. <laughs> uh, but, but we don't have all the cool, uh, you know, the cool different rooms set up. The, the, the Daryl Worley room. Do they have a Daryl Worley yes. room? Yes. We, really? we have shot in it. Dude. Wow. Yes. I did not know. Uh, yeah, I, I try my very best to not have hotel rooms <laughs> named after yes. me. Uh, just so we're clear. Yeah. So, you know, because you never know what you had to do or what happened there. That's that where it happened. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was sponsored by the Red Cross. Well, there you go. There you go. I think, you know, the Drake, man, that's one of those places that a lot of people shot a lot of videos. Um, You know, they filmed A Thing Called Love. That -hmm. was the hotel Mm -hmm. uh, that River Phoenix, and uh, they stayed in. Samantha Mathis. Yep, absolutely. A buddy of mine used to have a place... um, uh, one of my one of my buddies that I've known literally my entire career. I met him my first year at the ACMs uh, out in California. He was a cop out there, and and he he sort of did. Uh, Larry did you know uh, security work for the ACMs, and he and I got to be buddies because every year we would go back to the ACMs and or, or California. He would come hang out with us, and um, and when he first moved to town, he was he was looking at leaving California, you know. And I said, man, you ought to just move to Nashville and. 
And uh, a friend of his had a had like a, a duplex, like a rental house right over there. And I used to pass the Drake mm-hmm. uh, going to that house. And I was like, man, I, I remember that place from the from the movies and from different things like that. We so, shot there. Have you really? Absolutely. We did a 12-episode a web series, and we shot one of the parts of one of the episodes there. In the Daryl Worley room. We were we actually, <laughs> technically, we used the Daryl Worley room as storage and a working space. I got you. We shot in the next room over. Please tell me that it did not have, like, stand-ups of, you know, of, of like, six-foot-six Daryl Worley mm, over no. the corner. <laughs> it had a little plaque over the bed. Oh, wow. <laughs> and a hot tub in the corner. Oh, nice. Yes. Nice. It was pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> So the very first question that, okay. I, that I want to ask okay. is when you check into a hotel, yeah. what's the fake name that you use? Man, Because you're a celebrity. You I can't don't. just, you don't. I don't. I don't. No. No, I really don't. I thought of one on the way over here what that, was, you, what that was you might want to use. Okay, go ahead. Rod Hammerstein. Rod Hammerstein. The, here's the problem. Here's the problem with that in, in today's world. When, when you come up to your room and your key doesn't work and you go back to the desk and you say, yeah, I'm Rod Hammerstein. My key doesn't work. <laughs> the first thing they're going to do is go, Mr. Hammerstein, can I see your ID? Right, to prove it. <laughs> That's right. And then, you know, then it's going to get weird and all that kind of stuff. Right. And so, uh, no, I don't, I don't have, uh, I don't have a, 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 an alias that I use because, I mean, I, you know, I've never, I've never really had um, – I never really had the paparazzi following me around. Mm. Never had anything like that. Until have, now, you're on a, you're on this podcast. True. So from now on, I got to go find me a, a fake ID place to make me a Rod Hammerstein. <laughs> <laughs> I will you, say that. Feel free to use that. Okay, you know, fair yeah. enough. I will say that sounds like something you learned the hard way. So I'm not going to ask any more questions. So. You know, I, you're right. I have I have never I, I've never really been the focus of uh, of you know of the tabloids or anything else. I have. Mm. I have pretty much had my career uh, since, you know, since I started back in Atlanta in like 1992, you know, I was, I was a kid, man. I was, I was 17, 18 years old when I started singing. Actually, I was, I was younger than that. I was, I can remember when I, when I went to a place uh, down in Jonesboro, Georgia called the Lonesome Dove. They had an open mic night. I was 15 years old. Oh, wow. And uh, and I went in and and sang with um, sang with the band. I had never sang with a band. I mean, everything was back in those days. It was like a karaoke track, you know. I had my Clint Black karaoke track <laughs> and my Alan Jackson karaoke track, and maybe you know, maybe uh, if you went to Six Flags, they had this thing that you could you know sing in a booth out there and. And uh, they had some Alabama, and they had some Millsap, and I had a few of those tracks, and and that's what I always sang with. And um, one thing led to another. They uh, the 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 place called the Lonesome Dove had a had a sign, and it said, you know, Talent Night Monday Night, or you know, or whatever. And um, I went in and 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 sang uh, there, and that's sort of how I got my start, and then and then bounced around, you know, while still in high school to to different places in the Atlanta area, sort of getting my name out there. And um, one thing led to another. And, you know, and and, and I, I became, uh, there was a guy named Darren Norwood who uh, who had signed a record deal with uh, with Giant, or with actually he was with Warner Brothers. He transitioned over from Warner Brothers to Giant, and that kind of held his career up for about a year and a half, kind of getting everything going. And, uh, and I, I started sort of, 
shadowing him. When he wasn't on stage, the band needed a, a lead singer. That's how I got my start. And um, one thing led to another, man. I was, you know, I was driving to Nashville. I got in, got in with some some great songwriters here in town um, and started singing demos for them. And, and it just sort of snowballed. I mean, you know, from 1994 on uh, till, till you know, or actually, I take that back, 1993 through, uh, through about 1995, 1996, when, when I signed my record deal and uh, put out my, my first single. Do you remember the first time you kind of took a leap in your career and you thought, oh, man, I'm doing it? You know, I, I think I think the way all that happened for me, I was supposed to. I had I had become friends um, with some guys at college, and uh, and I would I would go see them down in Alabama, um, and I and and I had talked to them about coming to school there, and and singing, and uh, you know, and 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 there was nothing there was nothing solid about that. I had just told them this is what I wanted to do. And one of the guys, um, I had started singing around the Atlanta area and, uh, and, and one of the guys, I don't remember exactly which one, because I've never really talked about this publicly. I, you know, I don't know why I'm talking about it now, but (laughs) it was just one of those things where one of the guys was, was a senior and was going to sing that year. And I decided, you know, instead of trying to go to college that I was going to, um, sing. Uh-huh. Sing around Atlanta, uh, and I was sort of I, I was I was kind of barbacking at a place called West Texas, and singing a little bit with some friends of mine up at a place called Stonewalls. And then when the Buckboard gig came up, uh, and I got sort of ushered in there to sort of be the the next new lead singer, um, I just decided that that was the dream. That was that was the direction that I wanted to go. And I, and I, and I sort of looked around and it was kind of like, okay, do is going to college and spending the next four years singing acapella music. Is that going to take me closer to my dream of going to Nashville of, of sort of starting down the road that I want to go or is doing it, you know, this way. And, and the buckboard was a, I guess I have to step back. The buckboard was a launching pad. It was a place where just about three Thursdays a month, if not every Thursday, we had a national act coming through there. Uh-huh. You know, it was McBride and the Ride. It was, Alan, you know, Alan Jackson played there. Garth Brooks played there. Alabama, I think, had played there. Uh, I mean, you name anybody that was anybody in the country music world from 1985 through 1998, 1999, they played the buckboard. You know, it was that first place. It was kind of when when any when when, when any record label, um, you know, when when they had a new act, they would you know they would always book the buckboard. And and I give you a prime example of of the type place that the buckboard was. I mean, if you go back, there's a Garth Brooks song called, and I can't remember the name of the title. I, you know, um, but it mentions the buckboard. It mentions oh, really? playing the buckboard. Um, Billy Ray Cyrus played the buckboard on, you know, like I think he was three or maybe four weeks at number one or the third or fourth week at number one with Achy Breaky Heart. Mm-hmm. And he played the buckboard on Thursday night for, you know, I don't know, 3500 bucks. And the next night he played the <laughs> Florida State Fair for 85000 you know, right. I mean, it was that kind right. of place. It was right. that place that 
that everybody, you know, when they were starting out, they wanted to play. It was kind of like governors in Chattanooga yeah. or, you know, or, 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 or the Grizzly Rose or, you know, several of those places around the country. And so, yeah, so it was, it was, it, it, it immediately afforded me the ability to be in front of record people and, not this, not only just the record people from Nashville, but you know, like the local radio stations. It it allowed me to be in front of of all of these folks that going to school in Alabama, I would have never been afforded that that luxury, that that opportunity. Right. And so, you know, uh, here we are. How big, of, how, how big of a place is that? Oh, it was small. I mean, the buckboard might have held four hundred and fifty people, uh-huh. maybe. You know, I mean, like I remember, you know, I can remember playing there and Jerry Jeff Walker came in. I can remember playing there when, um, you know, I mean, it's it's hard to pull names. You know, Gene Watson was one of the first acts that I that I opened for uh-huh. at the Buckboard, and it was sold out. It was a sold out show. Yeah, you know, um, Chris Christopherson came in and played there. I mean, you name it. Like I said, you name it. They they came through there, and it was one of those places where even if you weren't scheduled to play there, you were there. Like Hank Jr. came in one night with Jerry Glanville, and on New Year's Eve, and it turned into a Hank Jr. concert. <laughs> I mean, it was you know it was that kind of place. Right. You know? Being there in that in that atmosphere in that environment and seeing all this helps you also imagine that that you can do it. Yeah, like it puts you that much closer. And suddenly you're like, wait a minute, I, in a way, I am doing it. I'm not doing it in Nashville yet, but it's similar. And I never did. I never did it in Nashville. That was that was kind of the the cool thing about my career was you know many of those conversations. I remember Jeffrey Steele. Uh, he was the lead singer of Boy Howdy, and I remember driving over to the Red Roof Inn and picking him up. Because I was kind of, you know, I'm, in, yeah, I'm the lead singer of the house band, but that is nothing, you know. I mean, that's that's like peon status, uh, you know, for the, for the bar. I was the runner. I was the guy that you know that that did whatever needed to be do that you know done that afternoon. I would run the guys to the radio station. I would I would stand in the corner of the room while they were talking on kicks or Y106 promoting the 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 show that night. So, you know, that was that was kind of my insight to what their world was. I can remember having a conversation with with Jeffrey Steele, you know, uh, driving him back, and, and he's like, man, you know, there's so many people in Nashville, and that's where I live, you know, but but there but there are ways to sort of make your mark, get your foot in the door that you don't have to necessarily live there. And 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 that was just in and and you know, it was it was such a quick conversation, but I I latched onto that because when the opportunity arose for me to to come to Nashville, to come here and to live here and to surround myself with it day by day by day, and leave my family and leave my kids and all that sort of stuff in Atlanta, I just chose to to keep home down in Georgia, sort of like Travis did. Travis Tritt, um, we, we just I, I kept home there. Because this was where I would come to work. And, you know, and especially in the beginning of my career with, you know, Jeff Carlton, God rest his soul, um, who was sort of one of the first Nashville guys to to embrace me and and bring me to town and let me sing demos. He used to he was he used to run Stradivarius, which was James Stroud's publishing company. Oh, right. Yeah. And, you know, Chip Hardy 
produced all those demos. And I had guys like Reese Wilson and Tony Martin. Tony Martin, you know, still, I, I love Tony to this day. Tony is is what I would consider one of my dearest friends in the industry, even though, you know, even though I live in Atlanta and, and we, we've played golf together, we've done all the things that buddies do, but he was sort of the one that kind of opened his arms and said, man, you know, I need a demo singer. And, and the reason he needed a demo singer was when he first started writing, Joe Diffie was his first demo singer. Joe Diffie signed a record deal. And, and after Joe Diffie signed his record deal, there was a kid named uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff Carson. Jeff Carson signed his record deal. And after that, there was a kid named Brian White. And Brian White signed his record deal. And then they were looking for a demo singer. And so it was like, you know. Get on the train. Yeah, I jumped on the train. I was like, yeah, man, I'll sing your demos. And so I, you know, I I go back. And and what's what's kind of neat about my home is that I have this little room in, in the basement of my house. And, and pretty much every demo that I ever sang or uh, or all that kind of stuff, I still have copies of them, like like board copies, sometimes rough mixes, sometimes the actual mix. But I've got demos of me singing songs that, you know, Sammy Kershaw had a number one with or John Michael Montgomery had a number one with or, you know, or you can go on and on and on about, you know, the different artists. Um, and, you know, and to hear things that I did on the demo that made the record that nobody cool. that nobody out there knows, yeah. that was me. I mean, if you listen it, like if, if you went and listened to my demo of Politics, Religion, and Her, and you went and listened to Sammy Kershaw's version of it, it, it was it was almost exactly what I sang on the demo. That's cool. And it just, you know, so, I mean, that's the biggest compliment that any singer gets right there when somebody takes what, you know, sort of your, your, uh, your version of a song and they go, man, that's... That's good enough. We can just put that version. out on our own. Well, Your interpretation yeah. is the interpretation. Absolutely. Well, that kind of leads us into our sort of main topic, which is creativity, which is you were creative when you made that demo. You put your own flavor onto that song. Yeah. And that's got to be a good feeling to sort of have a blank slate to work with. You know, well, Tony, Tony Martin, we'll go back to Tony, but... Um, you know, Tony would Tony would send me demos or or, or guitar vocals, uh -huh. and and Tony Tony kind of has had this like this monotone thing that he would do uh, on on a demo. Like, okay, prime example, my first single, Jacob's Ladder, and I get this demo, and it was like, dun, 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 dun. Jacob was a dirt poor farm boy raised at the fork in the road in a clapboard house. You know, <laughs> and and a lot of times that allowed me right. to sort of come in and take what, you know, take what they had written and sort of develop a melody, develop, you know, a, a pattern or a flow to it. And, you know, and, and that sort of that really got my creative juices in the in the beginnings from the songwriter aspect or from you know, from an artistic aspect, it allowed me to sort of make these songs kind of my own. Uh, not that I was ever, you know, not that I was credited with writing or anything else, but but as a demo singer, that's really what you want. I mean, I've I've sang demos for guys that, you know, you would you would come in and and they would go, here's here's the I want it to go na na na, and you would go na na na, and they would go no 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 no, it's it's na na na, and you would go oh okay. 
na 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 no 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 you know like they were hearing something that they weren't able to tell you what it was it was a dun 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 exactly <laughs> exactly so no. you know so, right so coming in you know coming into somebody like tony or, or or chip and those guys i mean it was a it was such an awesome it was an awesome opportunity to sort of uh, to sort of get your feet wet, mm. figure out how you know, figure out what you were going to do, figure out how you were going to do it, and uh, you know, and I, and I truly believe that going into my first record when we were recording Jacob's Ladder, when we were recording places I've never been, when we were recording these great songs that you know that that turned out to be big hits for me, um, it 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 really just that was the that was the thing I needed. It was the thing I needed to sort of, uh, you know, kind of prop it up and go, okay, I know how to do this. Uh-huh. This is the thing. I don't, I don't know how to take the pictures. I don't know how to turn my head and look right <laughs> in the video. Saucy. All that kind of stuff. But I know how to sing. Right. You know, and, right. uh, and it was. It was, it, was a, it was a wonderful introduction to the music industry. You said that's where the creativity came in. And, and it's occurred to me that, you know, you're a creative professional. We're creative professionals. And in order to do that, in order to sustain that, like you can't just be creative. You have to have the professional part. Mm -hmm. And so much of the start of everybody's creative career is built on the creativity and the excitement and the freedom to express and to produce work in your medium, whatever your medium happens to be. But after a while, it becomes about, wow, okay, it's not enough just to be able to sing. I've got to be able to talk to these distributors, or I've got to be able to do something on a budget, or I've got to be able to produce a tour, or I've got to be able to support a band and a family, and I've got to be able to do these other things if, if I want this to continue, right? right? And then you, there's, I mean, I know a lot of, photographers and other visual creatives. And a lot of people think if you just keep making good pictures, you're going to be fine. I, there's an element of that that's true. If you just keep singing great songs, you're going to be fine. But you have to support that. Right. Right. And then, and then there's this balance between the business and, and the creative part. Mm-hmm. And how do you keep the creativity going when the business and professional part is coming in and polluting things? Because that's the part that's absolutely no fun, right? I think for me, I, you know, I was never Garth. I was never Tim McGraw. I was never Kenny Chesney. And I used those guys because Garth was ahead of me. You know, when I was starting my career, he was already the top dog. You know, but but McGraw came along a few years before I did, and, and Chesney was a couple years before I was, and and they hit superstardom. You know, and and I think for for so many people, or for so many in our industry, when you when you look back at '90s country and you look back at early 2000s country, they were the ones that the pressure was put upon. It was, you know, it was nobody was ever. I say nobody. I, I sell myself a little bit short, but you know, but I didn't sell two million records before the record was released. Right? You know, there were there were guys that Shania Twain sold ten million albums in a matter of a few months. You know, that was never that was never a Mark Will's career path. I got the opportunity. 
I had the ability to go in with with my songwriter buddies um, and and listen to their catalogs and find great songs. You know, when you when you look back at my career, so many people in our industry, for whatever reason, they feel like they have to write everything they sing. And that was not me. That was not me at all. My my whole my whole thought process for my career was find the best songs that you can. Make those songs sound like something that you would have wrote. And and put them out there because the people that you're wanting to listen to your music or the people that you're wanting to you know, give this music to, they don't necessarily care if you wrote it or not. Um, they they want to hear great songs. They want to hear great stories. For me, that's what country music was. That's what I grew up listening to. I grew up with Millsap, and I grew up with Alabama, and I grew up with Conway, and I grew up with Merle, and I grew up with George, and that was the, that was, and some of those guys wrote a lot of their songs, and a lot of those guys didn't write any of their songs. You know, so so that was my. That was my thought process on coming into it. You know, I'm 26 years into my career. So I've been doing, I've been doing it at this level longer than I than it took me to be born and get my career started. So yeah, you know, I'm I'm looking down the road now and I'm looking at some younger talent that I would love to help out and I would love to sort of uh mentor. And and kind of pass my philosophy, or or at least pass my opinions of the industry on to them. Um, but you know, but I I still believe that you know when I look back, if I had been Garth, and the focus was completely on me, I would have had a different career. I would have probably been pressured into maybe doing songs that you know that I didn't want to do. Or, or who knows, man, I'm, I might've found different songs that I loved more. I mean, I can give you a prime example of having a song placed in your lap and not hearing it until you hear it on the radio from another artist. Tony Martin writes this song and he sends it to me and, and I listened to it and, you know, and I think it, I'm, I'm 99% sure it was a, a Tony Martin, Mark Nessler. And I get this song and I hear it and I'm just like, man. You know, it's guitar vocal. I don't, I don't really hear that for me. And then a few weeks later, I get, man, I'm gonna send you this song again. And and they sent it to me, and and it was Nestler singing the demo. I'm, you know, and I, I still, I didn't hear it. <laughs> and I'm thinking, man, I just, I don't hear that song. I, did, I don't hear it for me. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Six months, seven months, eight months later, riding down the road, hear this song come on the radio thinking, man, where do I know this song from? <laughs> got to the chorus, and it was like, just to see you smile, I'd do anything. And I was like, oh, I hear it now. <laughs> I hear it now, you right. know? And it was, a, it was a massive smash for Tim McGraw, you know? But, but we've all done it. We've all passed on songs. We've all had those, you know, those things that just landed in our lap, and we go, nah, that's not me. You know, and you look back on it and you go, well, mess that one up. You know, we've we've all done it. I, I love Tim. I love Kenny. 
I love Alabama. I love Millsap. I love Garth. I love Allen. I love Clint. I love all those guys. But I don't know that I would have ever wanted that type of focus on me to have to to live up to it. That pressure. There's there is a there is a astronomical amount of pressure when you are the top dog in your industry. And you know, and and I and I let's go outside of the country music industry. John Bon Jovi said, I never want to play a club. I always want to play a sold out arena or a sold out stadium. Good for you, John. And I can support that and I can look at that and I can give my 100% dude if that is what you want, that is that's what you go for. That's not what I that's not what I wanted. You connect in a much different way to a smaller venue. Absolutely. Than you do with your audience than you do in a in a giant arena. I and think, it's a whole different thing. I think my music, I think the music that I've put out is individual. You know, it's not the, you know, Don't Laugh at Me is not a song that you're going to have 30,000 people holding their lighter up <laughs> right. singing. Right. You know, right. it's not, oh, we're halfway there. Oh, oh living on, a, you know, that's not what, that's not what I did. Yeah. And that's not saying anything negative about anybody else's career. I truly went into my career wanting to be the soundtrack for people's lives. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, who knows, man, maybe if, maybe if my record company had, had made me the forefront, you know, of, of the label, my career might've had a different path, you know, yeah. but I'm, I, I can't look back on that. And let me rephrase that. I won't look back on that right. and have any ill will at anywhere that my career took me or maybe didn't take me because, Man, I'm I'm still getting to do what I love to do to this very day. Tonight yeah. I will I will go over and I will put on my shiny shirt and I will walk on the stage of the Grand Ole Opry as a member of the Grand Ole Opry. You know, in 90 coming up on 96 years mm-hmm. of the thousands and thousands of people that dreamed of singing on the Grand Ole Opry. The tens of thousands that recorded country music albums. I'm the 218th member. You are in a small fraternity. Absolutely. For life. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's pretty freaking cool, man. It is. It is. It speaks a lot about the Opry and the kind of careers and songs and music that they believe is important for country music. So it's not just the stadium acts. It's not just the anthemic songs and the right. stratospheric sudden success of certain artists. Right. Um, but the whole variety that of, of country music that speaks to people's experiences and lives and life stories, right? Mm-hmm. There's a place in that continuum for, for everybody. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, when you look at the history of the Grand Ole Opry and you look at the people that, that were members and that are members and stuff like that, I mean, I, I feel like that is it's like its own country music hall of fame, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, yeah. it really is. And to, you know, and to, and to have my, have my name on that wall and to be accepted as, as a member of that family, you know, there, there really isn't anything uh, career wise, aspiration wise that I set uh, as a higher goal than that. When I walk on stage and, and they say, what, how do you want me to introduce you on stage? And I say, Man, 
Say, Grand Ole Opry member, Mark Wills. <laughs> right. You can say whatever you want to. The last thing I want you to say is, welcome to the stage, Grand Ole Opry member, Mark Wills. That's one of my favorite parts about being the photographer out there. I've been, been doing it for 21 years now. Yeah. And uh, Brad Paisley was the first. And when I look at that wall you're referring to, yes. I can look at the 18 or so that have followed Brad and my time there. I can yeah. see my time there in plaques, yeah, which is pretty cool. Well, you know, you, you, you and I talked about this one time, but Les Leverett mm-hmm. came to the Opry one night. And, and we were, you know, and we were, we were talking to Les about just the history of, of the photos that, that he captured. And Chris, you're right there. You know, you are, you are literally right there for, for my generation of performers. You're our Les Leverett, you know, (laughs) you really are. I mean, you're the guy that when, when we go back through our career and when we, you know, the. Like the, the the first time I got to sing with Crystal Gale, you know, we were, I had just become a brand new member and, uh, and I, I don't remember, I don't remember how it went down, but basically I got told you're hosting the segment that Crystal Gale is on. And I said, well, if she needs somebody to sing you and I, I'm your man, <laughs> like joking, like kidding right. You know, because that was one of those songs that in my my adolescence, you know, 13, 12, 13, 14 years old, I remember my cousin and I sang that at a wedding. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, hey, man, I can be Eddie Rabbit for a night, you know, no problem. And I get this response back. We would love for Mark to sing You and I with wow. Crystal. And so, and you took a, you took yeah. a, a wonderful series of photos of that. Some of my favorite pictures. That's one of my favorite parts about being the photographer there is when they have these artists that don't normally sing together come together. Right. You know, those kind of moments are really fun. Diffie, Joe Diffie and I sang uh, oh God, yes. one of his last times on stage at the Grand Ole Opry. We sang Ships That Don't Come In. Yep. You you took photos of that. Yep. Um, you know, I, I got to introduce Charlie Pride for one of the last times that he was on the stage at, at the Opry. Um, you know, I mean, there are just, there are moments like that, that, that you are capturing for us that we probably don't get to tell you, thank you mm. enough for, because, you know, it's, it's hard, you know, we don't get to view it from the audience perspective. We're right there in the middle of it. And so to sort of see it from out front is our only, is our only ability to see it from that perspective. So, you know, so thank you for that because it truly is. I mean, those are those are some of my some of my favorite moments about being there. And you know, I've got great pictures of me and little Jimmy and me and Jim Ed Brown and mm-hmm. me and Jack Green and you know, and from over the years that are just that are that are that are priceless now because I'll never have that opportunity again. So you mentioned uh Garth and Kenny and Tim and mm-hmm. they all have a style. Yeah. What would you say your style is, and when did when do you think you kind of discovered what that was and embraced it? Well, man, I love ballads. Mm-hmm. I love great storytelling ballads, and uh, you know, and and I and I guess if I had to remove one word from that sentence, it would be the word ballad. Okay, <laughs> because I love great storytelling. Songs, period. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I think for I think for me, I got pigeonholed very early on in my career because um, I just think I sang ballads so much better than I sang up tempo songs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when when you when you come out with Jacob's Ladder as your first single, and people are like, "Oh, yeah, that's a that's a good song," and then you follow it up with um, places I've never been, or we had a song called uh, "High Low and In Between." It was our first video, but but for whatever reason, it it never took off at radio, and so places I've never been was was a big song for us. And then we we left the Wish You Were Here, or excuse me, we left the self titled. Mark Will's record, and we went to the Wish You Were Here record. And then that was I Do, Wish You Were Here, Don't Laugh at Me. And then and then they were like, Oh, you've sold almost two million of this one. Let's go. And we, you know, we can't, we can't go another single on this one. Let's do another record. Mm-hmm. And then here comes back at one, you know, or or you know, different things like that. And so, you know, I th- I truly believe that, you know, if there were anything that I changed about my career, it would have been that I would have placed some more up-tempo in my career. You know, uh, I would have looked for more 19-somethings. Mm-hmm. I would have looked for more stuff like that. But but in reality, you know, I wouldn't, I also wouldn't go back and go, well, I'm not going to record. I do. Because, you know, it's another ballad. Right. I'm not going to record... Wish you were here because that's another ballad. I'm not going to record, you know. Don't laugh at me because that's another ballad. You know. Yeah. I, I think that was my style. I think I think that I really always looked for great storytelling songs. And on the new, we 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 did a new record uh, in COVID during COVID, mm-hmm. and Tony Martin is a big part of that. You know, a big part of that process. But I went back in and I and I listened to some great old songs and I and listened to some great new songs and and one thing that I've always been attracted to is that song that tells a great story. But it tell but you know but a lot of the music that I've always chosen allows you to sort of interpret how that story ends. It's not necessarily you know cut and dry you know A to Z and it lays it right out there for you. It allows you to sort of embrace that from your own perspective. And uh and that's what we did. We did a we did a new record. I don't think there's there's not been a lot of country music like that over the last 10 to 15 years and so I, I kind of feel like hopefully when we, when it's time for us to put this new music out, hopefully in in you know 2022 um we find a home for it and we find a, a home for it that supports great storytelling country. So what I want to know is of all the songs that exist, and I'm, I'm talking any genre, yeah, any anything, anything you've heard, okay, anything what anything that turns you on. What song is it you wish you had written? What speaks to you, and not necessarily because it was a massive hit yeah. and it made a lot of money. Mark and I go through this all the time. Is we'll see um, a TV commercial mm-hmm. or a still photo, and we're like, damn it, why didn't I think of that? Yeah, that is brilliant. I should have thought of that, and I'm. You feel like you almost had it, but yeah. you just didn't quite get there. And, yeah. and even if you had the idea, you wouldn't have necessarily had the um, the venue to to do it, right? right? Like to to out to output it. But you could have. The idea was so good, you should have thought of it. Is there a song like that for you? Absolutely, and I recorded it. Um, you know, if, if we're talking about songs that you recorded that you wish you had written, Monty Criswell, um, 
who was another dear friend of mine who who he and I wrote a bunch of songs together and, and I recorded several of his songs. But um but he he and Tim Menzi wrote a song called Time Machine. Mm-hmm. And and the the funny thing about Time Machine was so I wanted to record it for the first record. And I want to say Alan Jackson had it on hold. You know, and and you're not I'm not going to step on any other artist's toes when it comes to songs like, you know, they have a great song and somebody's got it on hold. I'm not going to play the card. I'm cutting tomorrow. Right. I don't care when they're cutting. I'm cutting tomorrow. I will beat you to the, to the right. studio. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, that's 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 part of the whole sort of honoring each other's, you know, hey man, I, you may not be cutting for 3 months. It's but a it's, small town Absolutely. Ultimately. You want that song and you had it first, by all means. I wanted to record uh, Time Machine uh, for my first or second record. And and I believe Alan had it on hold. And I went in to the next record, and I wanted to record it for the next record. And I want to say McGraw had it on hold. Mm. And so I went into the next record, <laughs> and and it was like, man, I keep coming back to this song, and somebody's always got it on hold. And, and, and Monty goes, well... Now, somebody's got it on hold, but I'm telling you right now, man, I don't think they're going to record it. And I said, really? Yeah, and I said, okay, I'll record it. And I recorded it, and to me, it was one of those, it was just one of those great songs. Um, It's called Time Machine, and it goes back to, you know, events that happened and how if if you'd had the opportunity to go back and, and stop something, you know, catastrophic, you would have done that. But the spin is when it gets to the chorus and as you're coming back from whatever you've stopped that, you know, that was a worldwide event, you would have stopped by your house and, you know, basically told the one that you love one last time, hey, I'm sorry because, you know, your relationship split, mm-hmm. you know. And on my way back from the past to the now, I would swing by and stop off at our house. And I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say what I said on the day you left me. Mm. What a better place this world would be if I had a time machine. You know, and I just, I love that. I was like, you know, it was was a great love song. It was a great, like, hey, I'm sorry. But it also had, you know, worldwide implications in the the song. And it was just, you know. Everybody can access that song. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so that was was one of those. And that's just one of the ones that, you know, that I look back on my career and I say, man, A, that should have been a single. Right. And B, if, you know, if I could have sat down and just had that, that insight to write that. And, you know, and that was the great, that's the great thing about Monty, man. He's, he's always come up with some really cool angles on, on how to put something on paper that, that tells great stories. Can you not say Dibs next on a song, on a song? Like (laughs) if, if Alan had it and then can you go to Monty and go, I got dibs on next. Well, like, yeah. How does that work? I Absolutely, even... you can. You you can do that. I mean, you know, that's the as great soon as thing he about... takes it off hold, um, put put yeah. it on hold for me. Well, and and that's basically what happened. Uh, the other artist that had the song. Now, this is the third person that's had the song on hold. And 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 like anything else, I mean, you know, you record a record for Mercury Records, and and it may be six months before they want to go back in, and it may be eighteen months before they go back in. And I would never. Unless it was, unless it was nineteen something, I found nineteen something literally the night before. Or Chris Lindsay found nineteen something literally the night before we recorded it. I mean, it was it it fell into our lap 
that quick. Mm. Um, I I won't tie up a song like that, mm. you know, especially if you're not the writer on it. And that's really kind of what happened with Time Machine was that it was like, okay, look, we're cutting next week. And they've had this song on hold for six months. Mm. You know, and every time you talk to them, you know, every, every time the publisher would talk to them, they would go, oh, yeah, yeah. And we're definitely going to record that one. And you can tell there's a, you know, there's, there's a, there's a way that people say, you know, you know, we're, we're oh yeah. Oh, it's definitely, we're definitely going to record that. Or they go, no, dude, that song's on the record. Right. It's, it's there. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've written a song and somebody recorded it and they go, oh, that's the next single. And you're, <laughs> right. and you're stepping back going. You are a liar. Right. I know that's not the next thing, you know, but yeah, it happens. You've said a couple of things that um, I want to just expand on for a moment. And the first thing that you talked about was this conversation you had with Jeffrey Steele mm-hmm. um, back when you were with the house band at the Buckboard. Yeah, 17, 18 years old. And how these kinds of conversations can this it's just like it's a meaningless conversation you know it's a throwaway conversation but at the right time in the right place in the right frame of mind it becomes something that you that you can build a dream on right yeah. and I, I had a similar conversation with a very famous photographer that i was driving around we were on a long trip this is um when i worked for annie Leibovitz, and you know, we're driving in the middle of the night from Columbia, South Carolina to Knoxville, and we're weaving around these mountains on I-40 yeah. where the speed limit drops down to 50, you know, and it's raining and it's winter, you know, and everybody else in the van had fallen asleep. And she said um, a song came on the radio, and it happened to be like from the sophomore album from this from this singer. And... Someone said that they weren't sure if this singer was going to end up being much of anything, right? The singer was Sarah McLaughlin, so she did okay. <laughs> and then Annie, just out of nowhere, pipes up with, you know, people always ask me how I've been able to do this for so long. I mean, she wasn't even talking to anybody in particular, but practically everybody else in the van was asleep except for me. And it's hard to lean in from the driver's side when you're driving and but I was just like kind of turned my head a little bit and I thought, and she said, I just get up every day and I just work my butt off yeah. every single day to do what I do. And if you do that, I think you, I think you'll have a good long career where yeah. you are. I hadn't asked her a question or anything. I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten it. It is, it is the most beautiful thing in our industry whether whether it's the photography industry, the movie industry, the record industry, whatever. Uh, it's the most beautiful thing to know that, that, you know, if you decide to quit today, you can. In, in 26 years, there have been days when I said, I'm not doing that anymore. And there are days when I've said, I don't care if I ever do, you know, ABC, whatever. I don't care if I ever do that again, you know. And and I'm also sitting here with you guys discussing things that I have, you know, maybe not said publicly, but I it always comes back 
to the love of singing. There are guys in our industry that that started their career as a bar singer and found out that they really love to write songs. And now they, they sit at the house and they, they write songs. For me, it was always the love or, or loving the fact that I got to sing for people. And it, and it wasn't, it wasn't something that, you know, that I felt like, um, I was the best in the world at. I just, I love singing for people. I loved being able to, to take great songs, put my spin on them, put them out there, give people an option of, you know, of, of listening to a record, you know, if they wanted to, you know, and that goes back to what we were talking about, about never aspiring to be the guy selling out, you know, Mercedes Benz, 89,000 seats every night. That, that's not what I wanted to do, man. I simply loved singing for people. And, you know, and, and God gave me the ability to, to sing. And, and I probably don't honor him with it as much as I should. And I probably don't thank him enough for the ability of, of getting to do what I love to do. But I can tell you that that I know where it comes from. I know that that he, you know, from the time I was two years old, you know, singing Jesus Loves Me or, you know, or or whatever, I, I know that that's always something that I just love to do. And, you know, like your story with Annie, my story has me looking in the mirror and saying, man, you're the luckiest dude in the world because you get to go, and when I say you, I'm talking about me looking myself in the mirror. You get to go do for a living what 99.5% of people do as a hobby. Yeah. But think about it. Think about how many people that you know that goes to work in an office building, and and on Monday they're talking to their buddies about, hey, boys, Friday night, my house, the garage, Band practice, you know. When was your last gig? Four years ago. But by God, if the call comes in tomorrow, <laughs> yeah. we've got one whole set that we can play. Yeah, that you know, that's that's where we are. That's the that's the beautiful thing behind it for for all of us is that we're getting to live so many other people's dreams by what we get to do. It's that's just beautiful. The other thing I've heard you say a number of times in this conversation is. One thing led to another. You said that one thing led to another and I did this and one thing led to another and I did this. And the thing I want to just focus on here is that one thing cannot lead to another if you don't do that first one thing. Well, that's true. And Chris and I talk all the time about what, what do we say to each other? You never know. You never know. Right. right? You never know. If you don't make that first effort, because no one's going to pluck you out of wherever you are and give you the opportunity to do that, right? If you don't make that first effort, you have to take it upon yourself to make that first submission, to make that first trip to Jonesboro to sing, Mm -hmm. to volunteer, to do something, to to go above and beyond, to do something, right? 
If you don't take that opportunity to do that one thing, then it will never lead to another thing. Correct. And so many people, I feel, sit back and wait, confident in their ability, but for whatever reason, they don't seem to understand that it's not, it's not magic, it's not luck of the draw, it's not any of that. It's yeah. people going out and making things happen. And sometimes it can be the most innocuous, simple, unassuming thing as saying, yeah, so-and-so needs to be picked up from his red roof inn. Yeah. I'll go get Jeffrey Steele. Yeah. You know? Or maybe you get all dressed up in your best cowboy duds and you go sing a Western song at a Walmart. There you go. Yeah. Or you pick up your guitar and you go down to the corner of Fifth and Broad. Broadway. I know what you're talking about there. The YouTube kid. Yeah. I can't think of his name offhand. Can you? Uh, yeah, I've got I've got it right there. <laughs> if you hadn't asked me, I could have told you. Well, you, you said something right there, and I want to give you a prime example. I want to give you, from my perspective, of a prime example of what you're talking about. You said pluck, and 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 I've always loved that word. But let me tell you how I got. Let me tell you how I got plucked for something that opened the door for many years for me. So I go to you know I'm a Georgia boy. I go to Travis Tritt's homecoming show as a fan. I'm not there performing. It's Travis Tritt, Trisha Yearwood, and the opener is George Jones. Okay. Now I'm a big George Jones fan. I've, you know, I've, that's one of my first, you know, my first records was a George Jones record. And, um, Travis is, you know, just, I mean, killing it. He's, you know, he's one of the biggest things in our industry. Trisha Yearwood's, you know, been out a couple years. She's in love with the boy and she's, she's on the show. And, but George comes out and he opens the show and, um, you know, and I mean, I'm, I'm not in good seats. I'm like, you know, if the stage is here, I'm way over here, you know, to stage left, uh, halfway back through the Omni in Atlanta. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, man, and everything he sings, I mean, you know, uh, you name it, the song comes on, the the band starts playing it, I'm singing. And there's a lady sitting right in front of me. And, you know, and I Don't Need Your Rocking Chair had, had been released. And um, I'm singing He Stopped Loving Her Today. And I'm singing... You know, uh, just every every George Jones song, and this lady keeps turning around looking at me, and I'm I'm starting to I'm thinking, why, why does this lady keep turning around looking at me? I'm not doing anything. I'm just enjoying the show. I'm just having a good time. I'm singing along with one of my idols. Well, they start. I don't need your rocking chair, and I'm like, yeah, I'm <laughs> I don't need your rocking, you know. And, and she turns around and she motions up to me, and I'm thinking, okay, it's on. I don't know what's getting ready to happen. <laughs> How old are you here? I'm 17, 18, uh, maybe 19. Uh, and she turns around and she kind of gives me the, you know, the finger of like, hey, come here. And I lean down and she goes, Are you a George Jones fan? And I said, Yes, ma'am. And she goes, Well, hi, I'm Nancy. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, Hi, Nancy. And no she goes, way. I'm George's wife. Oh, my God. And I'm like, George, and I literally, I think I said, George who? And she goes, George Jones. And she points to the stage. And at this kind, at this time, she's sort of turned around, and I can see she's got a, a laminate on, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> and she goes, would you like to meet George? Oh, my God. 
And I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and she literally takes me by the hand, and we walk down the steps, and we walk down the side, and she walks me on the back of the stage. And and as he's walking off, this was her introduction to George Jones. She goes, George, I don't know if you know this or not, but you must be a pretty big deal down here in Georgia because this kid right here <laughs> sang every word to every song that you sang tonight. And he goes, well, Sean, you know, and he shakes my hand. And 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 that's, I was introduced to George Jones, and I got a picture with him that night. And that was it. And fast forward three years, four years, something like that, I have uh, my first single on the radio. And WSIX, one of the big stations here in Nashville, they're doing a, they're doing a, a golf tournament down in Murfreesboro. And George is hosting it. It's the the George Jones Classic or whatever. And um, um, Mike picks me up, and and we drive down to the you know uh, we drive down to the, the the golf tournament. And I'm like, man, you know, I'm I'm, I'm kind of somebody now. I got my first song on the radio. I'm gonna go up and introduce myself and be like, yeah, Miss Nancy, you know, Mark Wills. I met you several years ago in Atlanta. You know, whatever. I get out of the car and I and I walk and as I'm walking up to her, she goes, "Marcus, how are you?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Holy crap, <laughs> Nancy Jones remembers me." And I said, "Do you remember meeting me?" And she goes, "Well, absolutely, baby." She goes, "I remember it." She goes, and and we talked. Now, fast forward, twenty seven years, twenty no, twenty four, twenty five years. I'm I'm being inducted into the Grand Ole Opry, and uh, you know it's kind of like it's it's kind of like uh, it's sort of like your wedding. You want to be you want to bring pieces of the past with you, you know, for that night. And I call Miss Nancy, and I'm like, "Hey, I would love to wear one of Mister George's jackets for my Opry induction." I had forgotten that. Yes, and she says, "Come on over." And I and I go into the house, and we walk in the closet. And the closet's literally about the size of this room. And she goes, "Pick out whatever you want." That's awesome. And I and I got to wear George Jones's jacket that he took his last pictures in for his last tour mm-hmm. to be inducted into the Grand Ole Opry. You know, that's exactly what you're saying. You know, you take. You you have something that you do that plucks you from, you know, from obscurity, oblivion. Nobody knew who that kid was sitting in that seat in the Omni, singing along with Travis Tritt, singing along with Trisha Yearwood, singing along with George Jones. Nobody. I mean, you know, of the, of the 15,000 people that were there that night, Nobody knew that Mark Wills was in was in that room. But there was a lady sitting in front of me who kept paying attention that I was that I knew every song. And I wasn't singing for her. I was singing out of pure enjoyment for myself because I was hearing live for the very first time these songs that I'd sang my entire life. You know? Well that that totally proves the you never know theory, right? Yeah. Because, Absolutely. Because let's say you um you hum the songs. 
right? Or let's say you're not as loud as the person next to you. Or let's say you, you didn't don't go even, that night. Yeah, you didn't even go that night. I mean, all of these things are just little tiny pieces that you that diverge your life in, a, in the most interesting of ways. Yeah. Um, that's a great story. And by the way, I think that your new uh, hotel check-in name needs to include the word pluck in it. <laughs> pluck McGee, pluck... Hammerstein. Daryl Daryl Plucker. Pluckerman. Pluckerman. Yeah. yeah, you should definitely include that for your next check-in. I'm going to start calling you that on stage. Come on over here, Plucker. Be careful. Yeah, Mother Plucker. Where's Mark that Mother Plucker. That Plucker, I'll tell you what. What did you say about him? Phil, Phil Pluckerson. That's right. Oh, Lord. Very good. Did you have anything else? No, that's a great place to wrap. That's a great place to wrap. Man, we sure appreciate it. Um, One of the things that we like to do before we, as as we're finishing up, I don't know if you heard, we like to ask our uh, guests to name something they're looking forward to. You know, I think um, one thing I'm looking forward to, and I I pray and I hope that this is actuality. I, I really hope that after the last two years of everything that we've had going on with COVID, Mm. And all that kind of stuff. I hope that we are on the the verge of, regardless of of how you feel. I hope we're on the verge of herd immunity. Mm-hmm. I hope we're on the verge of people understanding that you know that that staying at home for two weeks is not going to get rid of a virus. I hope that we're on the path for life to get back to normal mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and, and us be able to, to go to work, uh, do what we do for people that are, that are afraid that they will take it upon themselves. Hey, you know what? I, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about this. I'm going to stay home mm-hmm. and, and let other people that are ready to get back to, to normal life yeah. to, to do that. That makes mine look pretty bad. Well, okay, what I'll is your my, then? My, so mine is that I'm looking forward to Wild Card Weekend. There you go. It's simple. I'm just looking yeah. forward to a weekend of football. Yeah, I, I'm totally because cool with it that. it gets me sad that um, there's eight games this weekend, then there's four next weekend, then there's two weeks. You know, I can. This is the beginning of kind of the football going away. Yeah, and I really enjoy this weekend. So, Mark, what are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to two things that are related to this podcast. Um, this is episode number 19. That mm-hmm. means that the next episode is going to be episode 20. And to me, I don't know why that number sounds amazing because yeah, it's just 20 episodes. But almost a year ago, we were in the early stages of planning this podcast. We hadn't dropped any episodes. Mm-hmm. And now to think that we're one away from having 20 is pretty amazing to it's me. It's a milestone, yeah. Yeah. And related to that is that in in April will be the anniversary of our of our first year, be our first year anniversary for Creativity mm-hmm. in Motion podcast. And yep. to think that it would make it that long, I know a lot of podcasts don't make it that long, especially things that started up during COVID because people were bored and stuck at home. Um, and a lot of podcasts were born these last two years. Yeah. Um, but to have such compelling guests and great listeners that give us fantastic feedback all the time. Um, this makes me feel good that we're 
just a few weeks away from having a, a one year anniversary That's for awesome. this podcast. Yeah. And we appreciate you coming and spending some time with us, or I guess we came to you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but, you did. <laughs> but absolutely. We really appreciate it. It's been great talking to you. It has been my pleasure. Thank y'all. This was I don't know how long we've been talking, but this went by really, really fast. Good, good. We want to thank Mark Wills for coming on today and also our sponsor, NOSI College of Art. Creativity in Motion is produced by the hardworking team at Penumbra Entertainment. If you like this show, please subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you really liked it, the best way you can support us is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. And on Spotify, you can now rate the show right from the show's page in the Spotify app. Follow Penumbra Entertainment on Facebook and Instagram. On both platforms, we are Penumbra Films. To get show notes or occasional bonus content for this or any other episode, please make your way to our website at penumbra-ent.com. If you have any questions for Chris or me, please send them to us at creativity at penumbra-ent.com. We would love to hear your ideas and thoughts about the show. And if you have suggestions for topics you'd like us to talk about, please let us know. We can even try to help you if you're facing an obstacle of your own and you can't seem to find a solution. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Creativity in Motion podcast. Until then, don't forget, one thing can always lead to another, but you have to start that one thing first, and that is up to you. Ah!